0: Welcome to Episode 6 of Inside US UCOM. I'm Master Sergeant Jeff Curtin from UCOM Public Affairs, and today I am with British Army Brigadier Matt Baisley, the ECJ 5 Vice Director. He and his team develop strategies, plans, policy, and capabilities for the Combatant Command. Brigadier Baisley, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today. Master Sergeant Curtin, thank you very much for the opportunity and the invitation to join you. Yes, sir, absolutely. Uh, so first thing I'd like to do right off the bat is uh, clarify something. You are a British officer working within a U.S. combatant command. So for those that are unfamiliar with this relationship, can you explain a little bit how that works?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So in the summer of 2019, there was an opportunity created for a British uh, brigadier to come over and join the UCOM staff uh, to work in the J-5 in the plans uh, area, specifically to... Create a working dynamic that brings NATO and UConn planning staffs closely together so that as we align our plans, so that as we bring U.S. UConn planning and NATO planning together, I see my role and my team's role as acting as the bridge between those two communities. We've been at it now for nearly two years, and I think we've been relatively successful. It's been impressive to see how quickly and how closely, despite the challenges of COVID, the UCOM J5 plans team have been able to integrate themselves alongside their NATO counterparts with, in NATO headquarters in Brussels and with the NATO planning staff in shape in order to achieve some really impressive alignment of plans activity
0: yeah a lot of what we do I know is uh, trying to align with those allies and partners across the regions here in the aOR and uh, I'm sure that your experience being in the British Army has really come into handy when trying to have those conversations with u s military personnel here at the at the command
1: yeah uh so plenty of experience behind me uh, this is my thirty first year of military service, clearly, for the whole of that, I've been a member of NATO uh, and also For much of it, I've been uh, serving or working alongside U.S. military personnel uh, in training roles, uh, on exercises, and of course on multiple deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last uh, sort of 15 to 20 years. I was lucky enough first to serve with alongside U.S. forces in Bosnia in 1995, uh, Kosovo in 2000. Uh, and then over multiple engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan, as I say, I was fortunate to work for General Petraeus's headquarters in Baghdad in 2007, which was a fascinating uh, opportunity to see the, the sort of the inner workings of that huge entity that was incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. So I've had lots of exposure to the U.S., which has been a pleasure, I have to say. And it's been a real opportunity. And I think what this role has allowed me to do is to bring maybe a European flavor to what Ucom's trying to do. Uh, and i hope that the sort of command team around us would say that we've succeeded in bringing that sort of the natoization of of europe of uh, nato of eucom's business yeah and i think we've been reasonably successful as i say yeah you kind of jumped
0: right into my next question there as far as J Five goes, the uh, the plans and strategies department, like what would you say is your biggest part there with that section?
1: And, and so the the, the two sort of feed off each other. The strategy clearly comes from what the U S wants to achieve by way of its its global posture, its global place, how it sits, how the U S is perceived, and its influence across the globe. Clearly, that drives the strategic intentions that the U S has. So that flows from Washington to Yukon. What we then have to do is take that and feed that into US UCOM activity and capability. So there's a sort of natural flow within the J58 staff that says, okay, so the strategy team will try and understand what Washington is asking of us, uh, and then my plans teams will take that and try and turn that into the ability to actually ensure that what Washington from a macro government point of view and from a defense point of view is trying to achieve mm-hmm. in Europe and around the European theater, EUCOM is also trying to do in a in a very coordinated and efficient fashion. And right. I think we do it reasonably effectively.
0: Right. And obviously we're trying to do that in conjunction with NATO and shape and all the
1: things that they're doing in the theater as well. Yeah. And, and it's important. And I, I, I kind of, I probably bore my team by banging on at the fact that, you know, we, we are at times guilty of thinking of the of it of, as the US and NATO. It, it isn't. It's, right. it, we're in this, yeah. that we are a member of this organisation. We have been since the Washington Treaty. You know, over 70 years ago, uh, the US was a founding member of this extraordinary institution that is the most powerful, capable, resilient effective military alliance in history. You know, that's a lot of history to reflect on, and, and we're part of it. Uh, and we should rejoice in that, because what NATO gives us as an alliance is the most extraordinary sort of security insurance policy, I guess you could call it, where today, tomorrow, by being members of, of NATO, we have a certainty that our security across the NATO um, area of operations, so across Europe and all the way back to North America and Canada, we have a certainty of that our actions today are there to secure our, our interests. And of course, at time of crisis, should something catastrophic happen, should the sort of situation deteriorate, that insurance policy will guarantee that our reaction is coordinated, effective, efficient and able to respond to whatever that security threat might be. Mm. So it is an extraordinary organisation to be part of. And we should. Uh, we should be proud of what we as UCOM achieve. We should be proud of what we as Europeans achieve. Uh, and, and to my American colleagues and the American population, you should be incredibly proud of your contribution to that that insurance policy because it is fundamentally the most impressive security and military organization I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I know that one of our major goals here is to maintain those
0: relationships and the allies and partners and grow them, obviously. What would you say that your
1: goals and contributions are of you and your team within the J5? So specifically, my I guess my primary role is in the plans development. And um, over the last couple of years, NATO has been working on the defense and deterrence of the Euro-Atlantic area, a... a um, foundation document that sets the conditions by which NATO is able to deter aggression against NATO as an entity, but also prepare to respond. Uh, And so we have spent a lot of time working with NATO allies and partners to make sure that we are able to respond and manage our activities today to prepare to deliver what I think we could consider to be the sort of the normal routine drumbeat activities that guarantee our peace today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And that's under a a document called SACUO Strategic Directive. Uh, And that gives us the sort of peacetime competition. What do we want to do? How do we want to do it? How do we want to maintain our security interests, build our capability, build those capabilities of our allies and partners, whilst making sure that anyone that might threaten us understands that we are resolute and determined to secure Europe? So that's sort of part one. And part two of my team's uh, efforts is in developing a plan in case, and I accept it's the 0.001% whatever chance that hopefully this will never happen. But if ever uh, NATO did have to go to war, uh, we have a plan that is ready, able, resourced, exercised and credible uh, in order to make sure that we could defend NATO and NATO's interests and the, the member states of NATO Uh, Should that be necessary? So two huge planning tasks for the team, which hopefully we're proving to be reasonably successful at. As I say, I think uh, that effort to bridge between UCOM and the NATO staffs has been successful and and even despite the sort of the frictions of COVID.
0: Yeah, some of the best laid plans are
1: ones that you hope you never have to use, right? Absolutely. (laughs) It's the... Yeah, it's it's a great truth that, of course, if you write a plan, you never have to use it. Well, that's fantastic. Whereas if you don't write a plan, you'll guarantee that you wish you had. Hmm. Uh, it's testimony that, you know, to us, Ucom had a pandemic plan on the shelf uh, that we were able to pull off and sort of start to execute. Now, of course, was it perfect? Was it absolutely accurate in every respect? No, but it gave us a fantastic start point to work out how we were going to make contribution to both our own management of, our, of the COVID crisis from our own internal point of view, but also how we were going to work with allies and partners to do what we could to support those across the European theatre. Having a plan represents a start point, not necessarily the definitive end point of the journey. Right, yeah. I mean, so
0: UCOM has a, has a pretty big uh, footprint here in Europe. How would you say that that plays into U.S. UCOM's commitment to NATO and the partners and the allies here in this region.
1: I came to Germany the first time as a young officer in 1992, and there were probably, I would guess, a couple of hundred thousand U.S. servicemen in Germany at the time. So when you say you've got a big footprint, yep, you've got it. You've got presence across Europe, absolutely. Uh, but the scale is nothing like what it was. And that's inevitable, of course. You know, there is the aftermath of the Cold War, the aftermath of the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the Warsaw Pact. You know, the, the dynamics across Europe changed. Uh, and, of course, we all became very focused on issues in the Middle East with Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. So the dynamic has changed hugely. But I think what what is testimony to what you have done and what the U.S. has done is you have refocused your military engagements into a more targeted, more sophisticated approach, where rather than just being a sort of a huge mass, a huge entity sitting in Europe, uh, almost just being a factor by scale, you've become more sophisticated in the way in which you target the touch points through which you wish to achieve your influence and effect.
0: Right, which of course goes back to our plans.
1: (laughs) Goes back to our plans to a certain extent, but also goes back to the quality of the individuals you bring into the theater. You know, you've got defense attache teams and office of defense cooperation teams security capacity building teams you know 39 different teams dotted across the European theater that gives you some world-class human beings some really bright really engaging really capable human beings out there representing the United States from a Sort of a global strategic point of view, but also representing the United States from a military perspective. That allows you to have some extraordinary influence and engagement. And of course, you know, you are as a brand, the US military as a brand is still a a world leading entity. So where you have those touch points across Scandinavia, Central Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, wherever they may be, your people are representing the very best of what your military has to offer. Mm. And I think what you've done very cleverly is you've replaced scale with sophistication. And therefore, you're probably having just as much effect in terms of building the capacity of the European theatre, building the capability of... Uh, your allies and partners, uh, without having to have hundreds of thousands of US personnel permanently employed in Europe. You will know better than I do, to be honest, whether there is a missed opportunity. I'm sure lots of your servicemen would have loved to have had the opportunity (laughs) to serve in Europe, uh, but maybe you don't have that opportunity anymore. But I think what we do see and the exercises that go on annually, and you've got some huge exercises, you've got Defender Europe 21 going on at the moment with thousands of US personnel coming into the theatre. For a short term to do an exercise, work with allies and partners, and then, of course, return to the continental US to see you know home, family, basing, all those sorts of things. So that nature of that sort of episodic engagement uh, underpinned by good legacy relationships you have with the nations across Europe uh, and then executing the plans that the teams here in UCOM develop, Mm. I think we're in a really good place. I think UCOM and the United States military can feel a sense of pride, but also a certain sense of satisfaction. You're doing things right.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned Defender, which is uh, something we brought up in a previous episode or two. We had J7 on here previously, and they talked about how they they write the plans for the exercises. So how does the plans that your team comes up with differ
1: from the plans that they write from those exercises? So their plans are, how do you conduct an exercise? My plan is, how do you fight a war? Okay. So they're kind of a level lower. So Defender Europe 20 essentially is moving 20,000 people from CONUS into Europe to allow uh, the troops to come and practice things like moving equipment into theatre, moving people into theatre, and then do an exercise with Albania, for example. Mm. That is not exercising a specific plan we've written. It's almost like a subplot that the J7 will write to say, hey, we want to do an exercise between US Army and the Albanian Army. Go do an exercise, okay? Now, ultimately, if you take all of those little exercises, you sum them together, uh, they build capability. They build the capacity to then execute, if necessary, the plans that the J5 plans write, the war plans that we write. But a J7 exercise plan and a J5 war plan will have a relationship, but they are not necessarily dependent upon each other. When a sports team trains, they train different drills. You know, if you're... I won't try and do a, an analogy related to American football because I don't know enough. But if you think of soccer, uh, you know, you will train a defensive element of the game. you will train, uh, you know, how do you break up the wings? How do you move the ball through the middle of the pitch? How do you take corners? How do you take free kicks? Setting the team. Now, if you think of each of those individual elements as being the training exercises that our soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines come across to do, you know, they, they practice how they're going to defend. They practice how they're going to be offensive. Mm. The actual benefit of that training only comes to be seen when you put them on a field in the, in an active competitive game. And you hopefully what you realize is that you are better trained, better able, better integrated than your adversary, and you, you win 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0. Well, that's the same for the military. You know, we train all of the different parts of our entities, but it's only really when you put them together on a battlefield that you see the value of all of that training. Right. And as I said, we never want to see that game be played. I don't want to be, on this living, I don't want to be living on this planet, you know, none of us do, yeah. when we actually go to war with an adversary across Europe, because none of us want to see what World War III brings. Um, but professionally, militarily, we have to be capable of having that fight if we do. And that's what the training builds of the capability to do, to have the fight, to win the victory, to guarantee the peace, ultimately if we need to
0: okay
1: does that make sense yeah absolutely i mean okay. as much as uh, european
0: soccer or football or you call football. it football you know, yep. yeah vers- stick with the football <laughs> well we have to call ours hand egg is is what i've been told in order to help <laughs> you understand how we play our game but uh yeah so uh, that, that does make sense and it uh it really helps kind of connect what the j5 does and how you work with the j7 who yep. then works with the j9 and All these different entities is one of the things we're trying to bring together and help understand
1: uh, how everyone works as a team to put on exercises like that and win that. And that's, it it is a team game. It is, the whole thing is a team sport. And like all teams, you're as strong as you're trained to be and you are as weak as the weakest member of the team. We wanna make sure we are capable. If we've got weaknesses, areas where we have risk or concern, we'll do everything that we can to improve our capabilities and address those. And I'd argue the same is true of NATO. I describe NATO as the most extraordinary sort of military family you could ever possibly imagine running into. It is incredibly strong, incredibly potent, incredibly powerful, incredibly disciplined and dedicated. That doesn't necessarily always mean we get on. Like any good family, there are points of friction, there are tensions, there are areas of disagreement which have to be resolved in a functional collaborative way to work through the problems because ultimately we want to be effective, we want to be united as a family, so that the strength of the alliance is the fact that you have 30 nations that are in lockstep and absolutely determined to keep the peace today, deter any aggression against that peace, but be prepared to respond robustly and determinedly and effectively if required.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember I was a kid, my brother and I got into a fight and he punched me in the stomach and walked away, didn't even know how to apologize. But I will say that now, you know, twenty years later or so, uh, if I ever needed him for anything, he'd be he'd be Absolutely. right on top
1: of it to Absolutely. jump. Absolutely, and jump that's my head. The, that's the reality. You know, I've got two you know, university aged sons. The the reality is, sons daughters, you will fall out with them at times. They will do things that will upset you. They will do things that will um, test one's patience. Yeah. Uh, stretch one's willingness to maintain the sort of family bond. They'll try and bankrupt you. They'll emotionally stress you, whatever it might be. But fundamentally, you still love them. And NATO has all of the same foibles, I'm afraid, which is that, you know, we all know what we want to get out of NATO, which is the guaranteed security of the NATO alliance and across the NATO alliance. There are just days where it feels a bit bumpy at times. Doesn't mean the family's falling to pieces. We no. just move through that and improve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would actually say that sometimes that actually helps the family seem more strong and, and put together.
1: Yeah, but, I agree. I agree.
0: So U.S. UConn works with NATO through SHAPE. Can you tell us how that relationship works to support the U.S. commitment to NATO?
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly it helps having the same boss uh, in General Walters. Yeah. That makes a huge difference because essentially uh, if General Walters uh, directs that uh, what he wants to achieve from a NATO perspective, he can clearly give us similar supporting direction from a UConn perspective. And that certainly helps keep us all aligned. I take no credit for this, but I certainly do agree. Recognize that in even in the the two years I've been here, it is tangible how much UCOM and Shape particularly have grown together, and that's fantastic to see because I think that is the embodiment of what General Walters wants to achieve by the way he is seeking to align and converge UCOM and Shape, and and that's really good. I mean, we see very very close alignment in the intelligence community. Uh, we've discussed already the sort of alignment of exercises where that's really moving forward. Um, on my plans team, there has been huge moves to make sure that UCOM and, and Shape are, are thinking and acting and planning the same way. And then finally, I'd say in sort of logistics sphere, the J4 and UCOM are absolutely aligned with and wedded to NATO's J4 and the logistics community. So when we talk about sort of enabling the theatre, making sure that we can move our equipment, we can move our people, we can support our people in terms of all of the logistic functions, whether it be fuel or transport or anything else. The J4 in UCOM is hugely linked into NATO as well. So there are lots of touch points, lots of connectivity manifested most clearly by the fact that we now have six monthly staff talks where the general officer and and flag officer community within UCOM sit down with their opposite numbers in shape and address all of the gritty, difficult, complex issues that big multinational institutions are going to have when they have to deal with each Mm -hmm. other about how do you progress the game. Uh, And the very fact that we can have those conversations in a very frank, very honest, very open, but very positive sense is testimony to how closely UCOM and SHAPE are aligned.
0: Yeah. Uh, we had actually J four was in here as our, as our last episode and you know, they were talking about all, all the kinds of logistics that exist within the Ucom theater. It's amazing how much stuff gets done. And of course you really notice when they don't get done, but in, in a lot of cases you don't even notice when things don't happen or, you know, you just have the toilet paper there in the bathroom. <laughs> Nobody recognizes how that gets there. But, uh, we had a defender Europe, of course, the logistics exercises that were going on with yep. that were huge. And, uh, now we've got steadfast defender happening as well, which, of course, is a NATO exercise. I don't want to get too deep into that. But I mean, I,
1: is that similar in the logistics of? So this, the the challenge is the same. If you think about the problem, you know, Europe is a huge continent. You've got multiple countries to move across. You've got huge bureaucracy and, and legacy sort of processes that as you move people and equipment and food and water and fuel and everything else you're going to need to move you've got to move that across multiple international borders uh, different commercial entities as you move from the French railroad network to the German railroad network to the Polish railroad network or whichever direction you might be going on or you may be starting at a port in Albania heading north across the Alps just look at the challenge of getting vast amounts of stock and capability and people ac- across the Alps. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a choke point. So what we're constantly looking for is, is how do we improve our functional ability to do that? So exercises like Defender Europe 21 for us, Steadfast Defender for the sort of wider NATO community are just opportunities to test and develop all of this sort of um, capability, not just in logistics, but in, across the whole piece. You know. How do we do command and control? How do we do coordination of, of fires? You know, How do we actually get to execute some of the missions we want to take? All of that sort of stuff needs practicing because you can't just turn up and execute it on the day of the race. You've got to be able to have the confidence that you know who you're talking to, you know who you're working with. And building that confidence comes from doing exercises.
0: So, I mean, I'm Shape and NATO working with us as we are part of NATO. Obviously, that relationship works to support everyone within
1: the European theater, all the way over to the United States and to Canada, of course, right? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, we spend a lot of time working with, not just with SHAPE, but with the, the Joint Force Command Headquarters, the sort of next layer down, but also with talking up to the U.S. military delegation and military representatives in headquarters, NATO in Brussels, so that they can make sure that Washington remains aware and understands exactly where NATO is going on a particular policy or a particular piece of development capability, whatever it might be. And that sort of totality, that ebb and flow between uh, Washington to NATO to us uh, certainly helps with the alignment, you know, because everybody mm-hmm. then understands what we're trying to do. And I do give credit. I absolutely do give credit to the political machine that sort of is based back in Washington you know, it would be very easy to sort of not lose interest in Europe, but think that, you know, Europe should look after itself. And I I do think Europe should look after itself. Europe definitely has to be prepared to make and demonstrate commitment to European security. We should not and must not have an appetite or an attitude of dependency upon the United States. That's fundamentally wrong from my point of view. You know, we, the Europeans, have a dependency and a responsibility to support the U.S., just as we hope the U.S. has a dependency and a responsibility to support the Europeans. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a two-way street. And therefore we have to, we the Europeans, have to be prepared to make that level of commitment as well. And I think, to the credit of our political lords and masters, the reason NATO remains so strong is that I think politically it's strong. As I say, there are always going to be moments where it becomes a bit bumpy for one reason or another.
0: Yeah, that's a huge part of that alliance, I'm sure. So how are we as USUCOM working with NATO to meet those security challenges faced by the member nations that that we have here in theatre?
1: So we spend a lot of time talking to our allies and partners. I was in, not a NATO nation, but I was in Stockholm just last week. I was in Paris the week before that. But we make sure by essentially having a constant dialogue with our allies and partners about what, what they need, what they want, what they expect, what they're able to do, what their contributions can be, but also reflecting what UCOM needs, wants and what our contribution can be so that we can work in a collaborative fashion. The very fact that everywhere I go and everywhere I have been in my time here in UCOM, it is a incredibly positive, incredibly warm and welcome engagement with all of those allies and partners. All of the European nations that I've been, had the opportunity and been able to talk to, they welcome and appreciate the U.S. contribution, and they want to work with the U.S. as a partner, as a, a kindred spirit. You know, mm-hmm. They see the importance of U.S. contribution, but they also appreciate that, you know, for you, it's a long way from home. And they recognize that it's not without price or burden or challenge that you all come here and make the contribution you do right yeah so it's a very positive relationship yeah I think. both ways
0: as we're wrapping up here uh, i just want to ask one last question and if you had to describe the the relationship between nato and uh usucom how would you identify how the two entities work together
1: um i think i'd characterize it as brothers in arms we have the same boss, we have the same aspirations and direction in terms of what we want to achieve. Uh, we are not the same individual though. EUCOM has its objectives on behalf of the US and I mentioned earlier you know, that we take our strategic direction from Washington, but we are brothers in arms. We want to achieve much the same sort of things, we want to ensure that our adversaries understand that we will counter their actions, hmm. we will push back where we see them threatening or disturbing European security and, and NATO security. And at worst case, we would be prepared to stand and fight collectively against that threat. So, yeah, brothers in arms. I think we're the Beau and Luke Duke of the European security community.
0: Okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> 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 yeah, obviously, with uh, all, us all having the same mission, security and prosperity in the region that relationship is huge yeah. and that's something that we'll continue to work on for forever.
1: And I think we can be very proud of it as well, to be yeah. honest. I think we should, at times we beat ourselves up about do we do enough, do we do too much, Do we? is it the right thing to do? It's, it's not a purist process we're in. This is not exact science that we're in. We're right. in the grubby, hard-end, messy business of military relationships and military activity. It's not high-end science. It involves... Human beings, complex terrain, complicated machines, yeah. and an awful lot of uncertainty. But we could be and must be really proud of what a contribution and the effect we do have. You know, Europe has, by and large, been secure and at peace with itself for 76 years now. That's something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be naive or thoughtless and think that you know it's a given. Therefore, that that will always be the case. Right. There are current and enduring and constant threats to that peace, but everything we do to continue the themes and the demonstrate the strength and capability, and our intention to keep the peace, you know, it is telling. NATO is set as a defensive organisation. You know, it's a defensive organisation that can punch very hard if the need be. Right. But it is not looking for a fight; quite the reverse. It wants to keep the peace, predominantly. That's what it's set to do, and that's hugely impressive that we have we have done that for the last 75 years or so, and we hopefully will do it from now until you know eternity, whenever yeah. that might be. But yeah. to see the moment when it goes wrong, it right. falls off the track, because at the moment, that's not somewhere where any of us would want to go.
0: Yeah. The fact that they want to keep the peace is obviously evident and you know it shows with all the relationships and all the things that we do together with all the different countries across europe uh, you know i can't say necessarily to say the same for my my brother 10 15 years ago when uh, when we went down that road but you know it, it's great to talk to you today and to uh to hear what your perspective is on the nato us ucom relationship and you can kind of educate a little bit on how that works
1: yeah well thank you and i it's been a pleasure i hope it's made sense Most importantly, I hope that, you know, the US listeners particularly take pride in the contribution you and your families and your loved ones all make to what is the most extraordinary global security architecture. What you do on a daily basis, what you give to the European theater and to EUCOM as a headquarters is impressively and probably impossible to scale or to give sort of clarity as to exactly how, what that looks like. But I tell you, as somebody that's lived here pretty much all my life, I think NATO without the U.S. and the European theater without the U.S. would be a worse place. Mm. So, you know, thank you for the opportunity that those have, I've been working with. It's been an absolute pleasure to work with them. But thank you predominantly to the U.S. personnel, the U.S. families and supporters who are here in Europe for the incredible contribution you and they all make. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for your contribution here being uh, kind of the fish
0: out of water as you you walk around amongst all the U.S. personnel that are here. It's perfect. and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. This has been Inside US Ucom. Today I spoke with British Army Brigadier Matt Baisley from the ECJ5 as the vice director. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we will speak to you again next time.